You can turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 132. I'm reading out of the Pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're welcome to open up the Pew Bible to page 545. Page 545, you'll follow along with me exactly. In your own Bible, it is Psalm 132. If you're using a digital Bible, we are in the CSB translation. For the last few weeks... Leading up to Thanksgiving and to our holiday celebrations, we've been reading a certain set of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, starting uh, with Psalm 120 and going on to Psalm 134. These psalms are a short collection, an album, if you will, of songs that are meant to be sung by the nation of Israel as they all travel to Jerusalem to worship God together. If you're traveling something somewhere for Thanksgiving, you might think about putting together a proper thankful uh, worship album for you to listen to, a playlist of songs of thankfulness towards God to listen to while you travel. Now, you don't have to do this if you're traveling for Christmas because we already have excellent playlists. And you know what? We're going to start singing those songs tonight at our thanks dinner and then every Sunday morning and Sunday night and gathering and I'm already playing them uh, at home, and so it's Christmas time. We have our songs for that. So you understand what, a, what an album, what a playlist of songs for a certain occasion is like for worshiping the Lord because of our Christmas ones. And I recommend you try Thanksgiving as well, songs of thankfulness towards God. But what we have here are these psalms that families are singing together while they travel to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And it's at a very specific time in Israel's history, where the temple has been rebuilt and Jerusalem has been restored after the Babylonian captivity, but Christ has not yet come. And so there is no king sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. While the people have been able to come back from exile and are living in the land again, they are not their own nation yet. They're still the servants of other nations and would remain so for a long time after this. Most of the psalms we've looked at here have been fairly short, just a few verses long. If you look back one psalm to uh, what we looked at Sunday night of last week, Psalm 131, it's only three verses long. Some of these are very short. This one is an exception. And you can tell as we go to read this 132nd psalm, this one's not only the longest, but it's also going to be the most difficult for us to understand directly because it talks about so much that's happened in Israel's history, very specific things we'll have to talk about and go over for us to be able to apply it. You won't read this one like you have some beforehand and said, oh, it's perfect. That speaks directly to me. This one we'll have to do a little bit of interpretation work together, but I think we can do it. You guys ready to hear from the Word of the Lord today? Well, let's pray and let's read it. Father God, I thank you that you have graciously spoken to us. I pray now that as we read your word, you would help us to understand it and to believe it and to rejoice at it and to obey it. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The 132nd Psalm. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured, how he swore an oath to the Lord, making a vow to the mighty one of Jacob, 
I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep or my eyelids to slumber until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard of the ark in Ephrathra. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. Rise up, Lord. Come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your faithful people shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees, that I will teach them, their sons will also sit on your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. I will abundantly bless its food. I will satisfy its needy with bread. I will clothe its priests with salvation. Its faithful people will shout for joy. There I will make a horn grow for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown he wears will be glorious. Amen. An interesting passage, yes? Read a lot of Psalms that talk about the Ark of the Covenant. And when you think about the Ark of the Covenant, you may only have in your mind the vivid image of a Nazi melting in Indiana Jones. You remember it? Yeah. Yeah, you remember it? That's, that is, I mean, in our popular consciousness as Americans, that's what we think of when we think about the Ark of the Covenant, is Indiana Jones. But something else is on display here, and in order to understand what's going on, this looking for the Ark in this place, bring this Ark over here, we have to talk about what the Ark is in Scripture, in all of it. First it's creation, then it's loss, restoration, and what, what's being talked about here. This whole song is a bunch of quotations from the Old Testament over and over again, and in a series that you may not be familiar with and takes a little bit of interpretation. This one is the most clearly written specifically for Israel. These people singing this song, going towards Jerusalem, know exactly what it's talking about. But we may need a little help understanding it. The story starts in Exodus chapter 25. Moses is bringing the tablets down from Mount Sinai in a dramatic fashion. When you think about this, you may think about Charleston Heston movie, which is not quite as popular any longer, but still in our consciousness and in our imaginations. Moses brings these tablets down on which is written the law, especially the Ten Commandments, and they're representative of the whole law. And a legal ceremony is going on, in a sense, between God and between His people. God is coming down with these covenantal documents, importantly, not written on a scroll, but written on stone tablets. The idea is, Israel, I will be your God. I have brought you out of slavery. I've taken a bunch of slaves and turned them into a nation, 
And they have, even as they were slaves, seen me overpower the greatest power on earth, Egypt, on their behalf without any help from them. And now I will be their God and they will be my people if they keep these laws, if they join into this covenant. Covenant, a word meaning promise, essentially. Here's what I will do. I will be their God. And here's what they will do. They will live as my people, set aside, different, holy, worshiping me alone and not the other gods, not doing evil but doing righteousness. They will be as was then and is now the nations of the world have lots and lots of evil going amongst it and evil regimes. But amongst all the evil nations, Israel too was to be this righteous nation that was generous to the poor, that was kind to their neighbors, that took care of their sojourners, that forgave debts. They were to keep the law, and if they kept the law, God would be their God. Then these tablets were to be put into a box. That's where we get to the ark, the ark of the covenant. These tablets were put into a box, a box made of wood and wrapped around in gold in all places. And what was less important about the ark was that it held the tablets. What was more important about the ark was that the presence of God was to dwell on top of it. And this is the way God was going to go and be with His people as they wandered through the wilderness, as they made their way to the land He promised. They would eventually build a temple, but first they had the mobile temple. They had the tabernacle, the trailer temple, that they would unload everywhere they stopped, whenever they stopped. But God's presence went in front of His people, and God dwelt with them based upon what was in the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the law, but based upon their making a decision to follow God no matter what and to enter in this covenant with Him as He offered to them, He went with them, and He was their God, their presence. As you know, the story of Israel, they failed to keep their side of the covenant, not once but all the time. They never really keep it ever, at any point. And yet God is patient with them and patient with them and patient with them. God still has a plan and a purpose for them, and God loves them dearly. When they go into the land, they never really take over all the land that's promised, and they leave these vile enemy neighbors, the Philistines. They leave them there when they're supposed to clean them out completely. They're supposed to remove them wholly and completely so that the Israelites won't be tempted to turn and worship their vile gods who demand child sacrifices and things. But the Israelites don't conquer all the land, and the Philistines remain. So at one point in 1 Samuel, this is recorded in the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites are going to go out to battle against the Philistines, and they're scared of the Philistines because the Philistines are a greater army, and they say, you know what we're going to do? We'll take the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll take it out in front of us out to battle, and this way God, our God, is more powerful than their God, and, and He'll fight the battle for us. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant out. They don't consult God about this. They don't go to any prophets and ask, what does God want us to do? God, whose presence is with them, God who has led them every step of the way extremely clearly by pillars of fire and smoke and given them words from Moses and from Joshua and from all these prophets, they don't consult God at all. They just say, let's take the ark in front of us, the power of God in front of us, and we'll definitely beat the Philistines this time. And they don't, and the unthinkable happens. The ark of the covenant 
the symbol of God's presence with Israel is captured by the enemy Philistines and taken over by them. And Israel is, as you would expect, distraught. But then the most fascinating thing happens. God demonstrates that He is God no matter what and no matter where. He demonstrates He never once needed Israel, as has been clear throughout this, when He brought them out of Egypt by His signs and wonders and His plagues, when He destroyed the Egyptian army by pouring the sea out on them after Israel walked through on dry land, after going around Jericho and God demonstrating He doesn't need the Israelites' help to fight His battles. He fights the battles on behalf of them. Strange things start to happen wherever the Ark of the Covenant is. They bring it, these Philistines, as a trophy to set before the statue of their god, Dagon. Dagon's this little demon beast-looking god statue that they've created. And they set the Ark of the Covenant before it like a treasure, like, look how our god helped us beat this god and is better than this god. So the prizes go to our little demon god, Dagon. And they wake up the next morning and the statue of their god has fallen over face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And the priests quickly go and they kind of pick it up and set it back up on its pedestal and, you know, must have been the wind. The next day, they come in, the statue has fallen over in front of the God with his feet and hands broken off. The people in the town start to get sick. These plagues go out, awful plagues, vile plagues that aren't worth mentioning, go out and infect all the people. Rats infest the cities. And they know, they go to their prophets, and their prophets say, it's because this God, the God of Israel, is inflicting this on you. And they try to send the ark off, they try to pawn it off on another village, uh, on another town. And it doesn't make their situation any better, and it starts hurting that situation too for the other village. Israel has nothing to do with what's going on. God is bringing his own judgment against these enemy gods, just like he did in Egypt, and just like he continues to do. And eventually, they go to their wise men, they go to their prophets, they say, what do we do to get rid of this? They say, here's what you're going to do. You're going to send the ark back to Israel, and you're going to send it along with golden statues of the tumors that you've received by plagues, and of the rats, one for each town that you tried to send this to. And you're going to send all of these offerings, all of your gold, you're going to give to that God and send to his people. Just put the ark on the back of a cart with some oxes, and the oxen will know what to do. They'll, they'll go on their own way, and they'll figure it out. God will lead them. And sure enough, Israel's still grieving that they lost the very central element of their covenant with God. See it come in on a cart behind some ox, oxen. And there it is, with a bunch of tributes and gold statues. But they're terrified of it, just like the Philistines are. So they don't bring it into Jerusalem. That happens later. It stays in a kind of a corner of Hebron. It stays kind of under the tribe of Benjamin land. They, they don't really know what to do with it, and they're terrified, as they should be. Uh, and uh, so they don't, they don't bring it into Jerusalem. It's not until David is king. After Saul finally falls in battle, David becomes king, and the very first thing he does is he takes a group of people with him to go to Hebron and retrieve the ark. This is a long time later. And to bring the ark into Jerusalem, and David makes a promise, and that's where we get to our psalm today. Now you know the story of the ark. David makes a promise, and this is all recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and he says, I am going to build the temple to the Lord and put this in it. David, devout, pious, we might say, zealous, Scripture might say, 
for the Lord. David, who has a heart after God's own heart, says, I'm going to build a house, a temple for God. No more tabernacle. No more meeting in the mobile church. We are going to build a temple where God's presence can dwell with us, and we can put the ark there, and we can rightly worship this God of ours who needs us not but whom we are dependent upon and has been gracious to us and allowing us to be his people. And David does what the Israelites should have done all along. Before he does anything, he asks the prophet Nathan. He says, Nathan, is this good? Is this okay with God? And Nathan says there in 2 Samuel chapter 6, yes, go ahead, do what you have planned. But that night, God sends a vision to Nathan. And God says to Nathan, and then the next day, Nathan reports to David, God's response to David's kindness of offering to build a temple, God says, essentially, David, I don't need anything from you. God says, David, I I don't need for you to build me anything. If I want it, I'll speak it into existence like I did the earth. God says to David, David, I don't need you to build me a house. And in fact, you are not going to. It will be one of your descendants who does. This is a promise God is making to David. Because he says, moreover, if if David's son is going to be the one building the temple, then this means for David at the time, both he's going to have a son, and that that son is going to sit on his throne. It means stability. And it means the blessing of God on David and his house. And moreover, at the time, God says, David, you're not going to build me a temple. Your son is. And also, I'm going to put one of your sons on your throne forever. There will be one who sits on it forever and ever. And this is what this psalm is about. Now, at the time when this is written, after Israel had been taken off into captivity by the Babylonians because they broke the covenant repeatedly, regularly, and did detestable evil things before the sight of God, they were taken off into punishment with Babylon, but still with the promise that God was going to restore them. And still with a promise that God made to David, there there were no contingencies put on it. God simply said to David, I am going to put one of your descendants on the throne forever. And that's what the people of Israel are talking about here. As they go back, now in the land, but still a fife, still slaves to other nations, Still without a descendant of David on the throne, they say, remember God. Remember. That's what this whole song is about. Verse 1, Lord, remember David and all his hardships he endured and how he swore an oath to do this. Remember, Lord, that you made a promise and please keep that promise. There are three commands they give to the Lord, not commands in the typical sense of, here's what you have to do, God but three requesting commands. First, remember, Lord, remember. Verse 8, Lord, rise up and come to your resting place. See, they lost the Ark of the Covenant when they go off into Babylon. It doesn't exist anymore, as much as Indiana Jones would have you think otherwise. It might, could I suppose, be out there somewhere uh, in the world. It's probably not in a warehouse, uh, in a government facility in America somewhere. But for all intents and purposes, they, they lost it. And so the presence of God wasn't dwelling with them and filling the temple like it had previously when Solomon was king. They know because of everything that happened with Esther 
They know that God is still protecting his people. He's still watching over them, but his presence is not with them poured out as it was at that time. And they say, remember and rise up and let your presence come and be amongst your people. Come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. They want to go back to this time when the presence of God was with them palpably, tangibly, right there protecting them. They know he's with them. But they call out to God and they say, Lord, remember, Lord, rise up. And finally, verse 10, Lord, do not reject your anointed one. They mean David. Lord, rise up. Lord, remember your promise and don't reject David, the anointed one. They know they don't have any standing to ask for anything good from God. They know even as ones who have experienced the judgment of God being sent off into Babylon, They know they're still sinners. They don't say, God, we're doing better. Bless us. They say, God, on behalf of your servant David, who had a heart after you, on behalf of your servant David, who was zealous for the Lord, don't forget him. For his sake, for your name's sake, because you made an oath and a promise, please provide for us and do this. They wanted home. They wanted their home restored. They wanted a king like God had promised who would create justice and righteousness. They knew all about kings who brought evil and oppression, but they wanted one of God's kings who would bring justice, who would bring righteousness for them. And furthermore, as you read by the end of this passage, they are confident that God will keep His promise. See, verse 11, the Lord swore an oath to David, a promise that He will not abandon. They're confident that God's going to keep His promise, and the promise is this, I will set one of your offspring on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, my decrees, I will teach them. Your sons will also sit on your throne forever. Verse 13, The Lord has chosen Zion. They know that God had picked them out and brought them in. And they know that this God was a God who was going to keep His oaths and promises. So what do they want? They want God to keep His promises. They want their home. They want Jerusalem restored. They want their nation restored. And they want God's presence in their life and in their nation And they're confident that God is going to do this at some point. Why are they confident in God? It's not because of something they've done. It's because they know that this God is a God who made a promise, and this God is a God who keeps His promises. That is why they are confident in God. All right, you understand the psalm now? Yeah. What's it mean for us? (laughs) What are we going to do with this? I mean, we know that God keeps His promises and has kept His promises to Israel. We know that at just the right time, God sent a descendant of David to sit on His throne over Jerusalem forever. His name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We know that while there was no man good enough, righteous enough to rule over God's people, God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and became a man for our sake, who sits on the throne forever. Look, He died, but He didn't stay dead. 
And if he has conquered death, then he will sit on the throne forever and ever. But we, not being Israelites, we don't have the same promises. We're not looking for the same promises necessarily. We don't live in Israel. We live in our country. And there are all these other nations, but this God of ours has promised good to all who trust Jesus. It's just, and this is important, it's a different covenant. We have a new covenant. God keeps all of His promises and will and continues to, but He made a new promise to us in Jesus Christ. I'm going to have to detour away from the psalm to read this one to you, but here it comes from Hebrews chapter 10. Since the law, that is their promise, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? He says that old covenant where they were to offer sacrifices for their sins, that old covenant didn't change them, the Israelites. They were still sinners dead in their transgressions. If it had changed them and made them not sinless, they could have stopped offering all these sacrifices. But because they were no different after they entered the covenant with God than before, they kept having to offer sacrifices all the time, continuously offering them. But in the sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins year after year. And so year after year, as they go to Jerusalem and offer their sacrifices, they're reminded that they're sinners and that there needs to be atonement made for their sin, that they can't do it themselves, and that these animals are no good for them on changing them. And the blood of the animal can't do that. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, God said, you did not desire sacrifice and offerings, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says this above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, or whole burnt offerings or sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then said, see, I have come to do your will. Saying here is, this is our own, this is, Hebrews chapter 10 is our Psalm 132, where you get all these quotations of the prophets. You have to know what's going on here too. What it's saying is, Jesus comes into the world and the declaration of God is this, sin offerings did nothing for the people. But now one has come into the world, and the offering that he gives is that he comes to do the will of God. He comes to obey God perfectly. Verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifice time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You know what it means that he sat down? You know, you know when you sit down? It's when you're done working. 
Because these priests are still sacrificing animals all the time. There's nothing to be done but sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. But Jesus, this one sacrifice, you know it was good for all of our sins because he offered it the one time and then he sat down. He's done. It is finished. A new covenant has been established. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are his sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies about us. For after he said this, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins or their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Here's the new covenant. The new covenant is this. We, like Israel, have no ability to do better, to turn over a new leaf, to follow God rightly. We need to be transformed. And we need an offering and a sacrifice that will go on forever for us. And so the offering, the covenant that God made was made in the blood of Christ. That once and for all, He should be sacrificed for all of our sins, for all time. So that forgiveness can be declared not just once, but over your entire life. That you can be claimed as His. And now there's not a law exterior to you, but He changes what is in you. When you come to trust in Christ, He gives you a new spirit, His spirit. He gives us a new heart. And now He writes on our hearts and our minds His law. This is God is at work changing you. Or God wants to be at work changing you if you will let Him. If you will enter this covenant with Him. He will begin changing your heart, changing your mind, changing your desires. He will immediately, for anyone who comes to Him today to enter into this covenant, He will accept you and forgive you. And then He will begin to sanctify you, to change you and purify you, to make you His. And this is our life. So what do they want? They want Israel. They want Jerusalem back. And they want God's King there. And they want the presence of God. What do we want and what has God promised us? I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to know God. I know that I will die someday, but I would like to live. I want the presence of God in my life every day. I want to know and have purpose and meaning for all of these days of my life in Christ. And I want the power of God's resurrection in my life. And all of this is offered to us. When we get together tonight, we're going to eat. It's going to be good. But it's not going to be the best part. After dinner, we're going to sing a song. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to read the words of Jesus, who when he offered the cup to his disciples, he said, take and drink, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwells. Why? Because God's presence is with us at all times on all days. We are the Ark 
if you will, of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and on us by His power and His desire. What do I want? Well, Scripture says Christ came to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Scripture says if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. That's what I want. That's the promise. If we say we have no sin, we declare ourselves uh, wrong. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But here's the promise. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. He is righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What promise do we have from God that we should cry out to Him and say, Lord, remember Your promises? John chapter 11, Jesus said to Mary and to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's the promise. The one who believes in me will live. Even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. What promise do we have? It's Revelation 21. Jesus himself says from his throne in heaven, adorned in glory, he says, look, I am making everything new. Jesus says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. What do you want today? I want the restoration of all things. I want an end to evil. I'm tired of it. I want an end to sin in my own life first, but in the world as well. I want to see the resurrection of the dead. I want to be forgiven of my sins. And when it comes the time when I stand before the throne of God to be accounted, I want to be counted by somebody else's account, by Christ's. This is what God has offered us as well. We cry out. What are you going to do with this psalm, this 132? We're going to cry out the exact same way they did. They cried out and said, Lord, remember. Lord, rise up. And Lord, do not reject your anointed one. We can say the exact same thing. Lord, we can cry out to him today. Remember your promises. Lord, rise up and come into my life and change me. Lord, do not reject your anointed one. That is not David, but Jesus Christ who gave his life for me, my king. These are the things that I want, and I am confident that God will do it. Why? Because this God always keeps his promises. Finally, I want to end this way reading to you from Philippians chapter 3. This is how Paul says what we just said here. Paul says about these promises, My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering 
being conformed to his death, assuming that I will reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul says, like us, not that I've already taken hold of this. I'm not already perfect. But I do make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. Have you been taken hold of by Jesus Christ? Then make every effort to take hold of Him. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my prize the goal promised by God's heavenly calling in Jesus Christ. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think in this way. If you think differently about any of it, God will reveal this to you also. In any case, live up to the truth you've attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, Paul causes us to do. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. For I've often told you, and now I say again with tears, that there are many who live as enemies to the cross. We know these friends of ours these family members of ours, and we say it with tears as well. There are many who live as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God, Dagon, their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. This is what Paul wanted and believed. And Paul was confident that he was going to get it from Christ. Why? Because this God always keeps His promise. If you are not in covenant with Christ today, you can be. He is offering before you today the opportunity to receive His promise. And it's all of these things we've listed. There's nothing you can give to do it. You can't build a temple for Him any more than David could have. You have nothing to contribute. But He does want you. And He will take you if you will go to Him with your whole life, come to Christ today and say, Jesus, I believe, I will obey. Come today and let Jesus be your Lord and Savior as well. Father God, I thank You that You are so gracious to us. I thank You for the new covenant in Your blood. I thank you that all the things that we cannot do, you have done for us. I thank you that though we are sinners, yet we are counted as saved and forgiven. I thank you that you have so separated our sins from us. I thank you, Jesus, that you are coming again. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us at all times and never leave us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. I ask only today that you would remember your promises to us, that you would rise up and enter into our lives in powerful new ways. And I pray that you would remember Jesus Christ, our Lord, as our sacrifice and King. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.